Come up on I'm in Studio B, sitting across from my good friend Benjamin Alida Science. And I'm in Studio B too, and I'm sitting across from my good friend Daniel. Now Tupor. wait a minute, are you in Studio B too or Studio B also? Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today, our guest is Raphael Dagold, whose new book of poems, Bastard Heart, just came out with Silverfish Review Press, and it is the winner of the Gerald Cable Book Award. He's a very, very fine poet, and we're very lucky to have him on our show. And he's also uh, went to grad school with Daniel. Right, University of Oregon. We went to the same class, and so I've known this guy for years, but it's nice to reconnect once he got this book published, and it was quite a struggle, and we'll, we'll ask him a little bit about that. Also, for Poetic License, we have Antonina Paris-Yarborough, and she's going to talk a little bit about reading and patience and how discovering great books can just be uh, an amazing experience. I'm looking forward to that. She's a very intelligent, uh, brilliant young woman, and she also happens to be the daughter of Steve Yarborough who is the fiction writer. Nice. And he was my very first fiction writing teacher at at Fresno State. Now he's at uh, Boston University, or Emerson, excuse me. And uh, she's gone on to uh, get a Ph.D. and to become a brilliant uh, English professor. So Six degrees of separation. Yeah, and you know what's really weird? I, I remember the last time I saw her, she was probably seven years old. I was at a party at Steve Yarbrough's house, and here's this little, his little daughter's running around. It was so cute. And now she's a poet. A genius. Nice. So we're glad to have her. Uh, so stick around, uh, Ben. We were going to talk a little bit about the Penn Hemingway Award. You were a judge this year. And can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a judge? I mean, do you, they send you like, what, a box of books and you have to read them all? No, we don't. Ha- I didn't have to read them all. Well, this is the way they do it at the, at the Penn Hemingway. They, they send each judge. There was three of us. Uh, Scott Turrell was one judge. Popular fiction writer. R- yes. He writes, uh, he writes mystery novels. Uh, legal, actually, le- legal mystery novels. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's an excellent writer. He's an ex-Stegner fellow as well. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, the other judge was Indira Ganim. And we're all fiction writers, and we all have very different tastes, and our writing is very different. And I, I must say that we had – my two colleagues were very generous and collegial. It was very difficult to, to make our final judgments. We each got 35 books, and then we pushed our own books forward, and then I got wow. their books. And then from the top, say, 12 books that we pushed forward for each, then we chose uh, six. Wow. And then we, we had to pick one winner. The eventual winner was We Need New Names by No Violet Buluwayo. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. It's a phenomenal book. And all the books were phenomenal. There was two honor books. One of them was entitled The Residue Years, and then the other one was titled The Old Priest and Other Stories. And it's just, but it was just an amazing journey. And when people lament the state of American fiction, I'm going to tell you, they don't know what they're talking about. They're not paying attention. They're not paying attention. There's great books out there, really, really great books. So many that I'd like to recommend, perhaps in a future show. But but I I just wanted to say that, that even though it was a lot of work, and I already have a really busy schedule. It was a great privilege to to be one of the judges and to read so many books by so many fine uh, young writers. Right. I also think that there are so many brilliant young writers today, probably more than there have ever been, which makes sense because of the proliferation of the, the MFA culture and the MFA programs. This year I was judged for the AWP Intro Awards in Fiction. And they sent me in a giant box full of stories. I, I don't even know how many stories there were. And it was so hard 
to eliminate stories. I mean, some some were easier than others, but it was so hard to eliminate them because they were, I would say, 80% of them were just amazing. And I'm thinking, wow, these people are going to be publishing books in, in, in five years. And yeah, I don't, think, I don't think fiction is suffering, that's for sure. Right. So, and it really helps our art to be readers. Right. And I think also that the better people are and the more great writing out there, the more it challenges other writers to be better. Exactly. And so I think we're going to do pretty good. Long live books. Ahua. Long live literary culture. And long live the pen Hemingway Award, which is for a first book of fiction. Isn't that right? Yes, it is. Well, we're going to have to get those finalists and the winner on the show. We will do that. We will absolutely do that. And I'm already prepared. Stick around, and we will talk to Raphael Doggold, author of Bastard Heart. Stay tuned. Raphael Doggold is the author of a poetry collection entitled Bastard Heart, the winner of the 2012 Gerald Cable Book Award. He was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. His poems, fables, and photographs have appeared in Frank, Northwest Review, Born, Western Humanities Review, Two Girls Review, and other publications. He has taught writing and literature at the University of Utah, Lewis and Clark College, and other institutions, and has won fellowships and award from the Ucross Foundation, Oregon Literary Arts, and the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. Raphael, welcome to our show, Words on a Wire. Hey, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be on the show. Congratulations on your book, Bastard Heart. Tell us a little bit about how this book came about. Oh, sure. Well, I'll tell you, it was a long time in coming, uh, really. Um, a few of the poems in the book uh, were written as long as, uh, I think, about almost 20 years ago, actually. I had a first manuscript um, with the title Carbon uh, that I was sending out for a while, and then uh, eventually I kind of gave up on that. I felt that a, a lot of the poems in that in that book were kind of maybe apprentice poems, to, to put it that way. <laughs> apprentice um, poems. And then, uh, no, yeah, apprentice poems. Yeah, it sounds better than, you know, just bad poems, you know, <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, and a few years passed, and I was still, you know, writing new poems, and uh, eventually I just said, well, you know, really, um, I've got this whole set of new poems, and I and I took out what I thought were the best poems from the first manuscript and, and, and made this new one. You know, and I was aware that there were certain themes or strains, uh, veins, you know, running through through the through the new book and, and uh, kind of sets of, of ideas. Uh, and that that it seemed to be a cohesive whole if I were to put it into the right order. So that's you know that's kind of how the the, the book the book came to be in a in a short short way. You have a couple of questions. First of all, the idea of a bastard heart. How did that enter your imagination? I have a couple of different ways to answer that. One is through the language. I mean, that is well. First of all, to say that the the title of the book is the title of one of the poems in the book. Yes, and that's how it became the title of the whole the whole collection. But when I was writing that first poem, I mean, that, that, that poem with the title Bastard Heart, it, it didn't have a title yet. And I got to a line where uh, the poem is saying, you know, why these birds are doing this, why these birds are doing that. Is anybody's bastard heart to fill a mouth? And, I, and it was like, well, where did that phrasing come from? And it's like, you know, is anybody's guess? 
But the way, the way that I thought about it is, is anybody's bastard heart. You know, and, and I guess, you know, because the poem is about unknowing in a lot of ways and the feeling things out. So I, I don't, I can really tell you exactly where that phrase came from, but it was, you know, out of, out of guilt and anger. <laughs> but it entered through the language that is that, that phrase is anybody's gas, you know? Yeah. But then it just became, for some reason, as I wrote it, as anybody's bastard heart. Well, it seems so right, though. And you have a thing for blackbirds. Could you talk about that? <laughs> they appear in yeah. several of your poems. 13 times, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah, I stole the whole idea from that other poet. <laughs> right, yeah. um, well, that's a very, it's not like I had an obsession with blackbirds and then decided to write some poems about blackbirds, because there are, there's, there's three poems, Bastard Heart, Tree Heart, and Dirt Heart, and that would kind of, kind of in my mind anyway, anchor the book, and they're all about blackbirds. But it came out from a very, very specific uh, scene. Uh, I spent a month in Wyoming at the U-Cross Foundation a number of years ago, to write for a month, and where my studio was, there was a tree across the road, the dirt road, a tree, the big tree that just filled up with these birds, um, these black birds, and they would collect there, and the whole flock of them would get louder and louder, and then they would uh, start to move across the road down into this field of grain that was a field of millet, um, and after leaving there, that just stuck with me, because they, they would do it every single day, and uh, so I started writing that poem, Bastard Heart, really simply to describe those birds um, as, as clearly as I could, but then knowing that there were some emotional things, personal things going on in my life um, that, uh, that was driving me to have that obsession and that particular view of the, of the birds. Um, so, it, so it came out of that, and I, and I had the sense that I was writing more than one poem when I started that, that first one, so it became a series of three. We're talking to Raphael Dagold, author of Bastard Heart, which just came out with Silverfish Review Press. Raphael, we went to graduate school together at the University of Oregon. I've known you so, therefore, for many years, although we basically are just connecting right now. But mm -hmm. one of the things I really admire about you, in fact, you are one of my literary heroes, because this book is a result of hard work and persistence and patience and patience and patience. <laughs> It was a while before you got this book out after graduate school, and, and it must have been quite a struggle to, to do it, but you, you did it. I mean, you did it. You, you didn't give up, and I'm mm -hmm. always telling my students, if you don't give up and you have the talent, and clearly it's a, it's a beautiful book. I mean, you, you have this amazing gift, but were there ever any points where you just thought to yourself, you know what, the heck with this, I'm going to do something else? It, no, it, it never occurred to me to say it that way, to say the heck with it, and, and, and I'm going to do something else. You know, I, I, I always believed somewhere that I would eventually have a book, um, and I and I at bottom believed that it was worth it for me to continue to write poems. Um, but that isn't to say that there were times that there weren't times of despair and thinking, you know, that 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 negative self talk that we all have at some time or another, um, where I thought, you know, is, is this really going to happen? Is you know, is my work really worthwhile at all? Um, you know, those kinds of questionings. But I always came back to, you know, yes, it is worth it, worthwhile, and yes, eventually I will have a book, um, even though there were times of, of thinking, um, oh, man, it's not going to happen this year, it's not going to happen in the next five years, it's why hasn't it happened yet, you know, right, right. All, 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 all of that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly good at whipping myself, but, uh, but at bottom, I, I, never, I never gave up. 
Yeah, it's really difficult to have a colleague like Benjamin Alita Sainz because he's always winning all these prizes and, and, and <laughs> selling novels to Simon and Schuster. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's kind of depressing just being next to him. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But, but exactly. One, of, one of the things that you have in, in what, what you just said is even though you would say things like it's not going to happen this year or it may not happen in the next two years, you know, which it almost allows it not to happen, you still mm-hmm. kept that image that it was going to happen and you still work towards that. And, and that's, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, I'm positive that has a lot to do with why it did eventually happen because you just, you, you held that image and you didn't give it up. Let me ask you, mm-hmm. what's your image for a second book? Well, I've got one in the works. Um, it's um, maybe half done, depending on how it, you look at it. And um, I hope to have empty or half full. Is that the dichotomy you're saying? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, like it's either, uh, it's either a book that's uh, on its way to be a cohesive whole uh, very soon, or it's a book that's just a collection of tatters that might disappear at any moment. Um, <laughs> but I, I hope it's the former. Um, and I hope to have it done sometime in the next year uh, and, and to be sending it out then. Um, it's all poems that I've written just in the last few years, and uh, some some. Ex- I'm really excited about it. Actually, there's some um, exciting new territory in terms of style that I'm working with, um, including a, some, a a web-based project that I'm hoping to have a somehow have a good way to link to something within the pages of the paper book. That kind of patience you were talking about earlier. It's really interesting to me, like you just knew it was going to happen, and you just kept writing and reworking and just mm-hmm. that faith. Because there was a time when I did say that to myself. My career's in the toilet, just flush and just, just move <laughs> on, just move mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. But after I s- said that, I wrote my best novel, mm-hmm. what, in, mm-hmm. what in my opinion is my best novel. Which one was that? In Perfect Light. Mm. I remember that period yeah. that you were going through too. Yeah, and it, and it sure. got and it sure. got published, and it was, you know, it just it changed the the shape of my career. But maybe I needed to say that to myself. Maybe and maybe you didn't need to say that to yourself. <laughs> yeah, no. I, when I think about particular poems, like including that poem, the, the title poem, "Bastard Heart." When I wrote that poem, I was just like, you know, I have no idea where this is going, whether it's publishable, whether it's going to be publishable. But um, I just need to try some stuff out. And I remember when I was writing it, I was thinking, I'm just, I'm going to write a magic spell, is the way that I thought about it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, just, just this arcane, weird stuff on the page. Um, and it became, you know, for me, one of my, one of, one of my favorite poems. I mean, that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. it's the, it's the title poem. But I would say that too, to, to keep that faith, I, I need to say that, um, one of the things that, that kind of kept me in it, um, in my heart, was things like uh, working in a Writers in the Schools program, which I did for nine years in, in, in Portland. Good Florida. for you. Yeah, yeah. It was just really terrific. Cause, I mean, so that meant that, you know, every year um, for, you know, either three weeks or for a full semester, once a week, depending on how they arranged it, um, I would be in there going into high school classrooms and talking to kids about poetry and helping them to, to, to write. And um, that just kind of kept me kept me fresh, I guess, you know, to see that, you know, here were these ninth graders, 10th graders, you know, seniors, you know, writing their poems. I mean, so many high school kids write. And, and that just, that just kept the, kept the faith for myself, I think, and other things, including, say, adjunct at a community college, which I also did for a number of years in teaching composition and creative writing. 
so things like that really did uh, keep me keep my own faith up. In in putting this book together, Bastard Heart, over the years, or you know, however long it took you to put together, uh, and once you finally had what you know essentially became you know the book that that we're holding in our hands right now, mm-hmm. were there certain themes that emerged uh, from poem to poem, links and connections that surprised you? Well, yeah, I, it's interesting because to sort of work backwards on that question. Um, I find now that it is when it is this physical product that I'm holding in my hand right right here that that when I open it up and I see oh look there's this poem on the left hand facing page and then it moves on to this other poem oh that how interesting what kind of you know resonances are there that is in other words this book surprises me even though I very deliberately <laughs> right. put it together um, but now it's a different thing somehow um, in the in the in the you know balanced pages um, so it, it continues. To surprise me, but at the same time, when I did put it together, and I remember spreading out the pages on a big coffee table and and putting it together, there were certain you know I was aware that there were certain themes such as Jewish family history, right. uh, Jewish global history. There were uh, you know childhood poems. There were you know mother poems, father poems. Um, there were dissolution of marriage poems, and I I did consider making sections of the book. But that never really made sense to me because, you know, say a poem that has to do with Jewish family history moves um, you know, quickly to uh, Jewish global history, and it also is a childhood poem, it's also a general family poem, etc. And so I tried to put the poems together where kind of facets of those, I don't know, crystals would touch at different points and move through the book in a more interesting way than trying to, you know, glob, you know, big headings together. I just really thought that the history that came out, like again, like I said, just so organically, was was fascinating, and it really added another dimension and depth to the book. But to me, the power of the book is coming from these personal experiences. Like one of my favorite poems, you know, Ben's is his favorite poem in the book is Elements, but my favorite poem in the book is the one about the apple core, learning to eat apples. I, I think that's, that's right. it's incredibly beautiful. And uh, that image of the apple and the father and, mm-hmm. and, and all that mm-hmm. just kind of just seems to come out so naturally. Do you have a favorite poem in the collection? Oh, do I have a favorite poem? Oh, man. Um, or do you love all your children? <laughs> <laughs> These are all my children. I, I don't want to leave any of them behind. Um, I, uh, I think I always come back to the title poem, Bastard Heart. Um, I mean, and I think that part of the reason that it's, continues to come up as my favorite poem. It's not always my favorite poem, but it always comes back to it, is because I might, it's difficult for me to understand. You know, I wrote it to try to figure out some stuff, and I'm still figuring out that same stuff. You know, and I, I read it, and I don't quite get it myself, and I think that that's one of the reasons it's, it's my favorite. Would you like to read that poem for us? Well, I, I would if you'd like to, but I, you know, I'll go with the one that you wanted me to read. Well, first. I would want the apple course, so we're going to have to fight about this. <laughs> but it's got to be among um, the three. I'll, you know, I'll, go with the, I'll go with the one that uh, Benjamin wanted me to read, New Elements. Yeah, all right. Great. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I I'm love kidding. you, Raphael. <laughs> all right. I love you, too. Um, there's an epigram. New Elements. Old Jewish Cemetery, Prague. For lack of space... This cemetery has 12 layers of burials. With each successive layer, the gravestones have been moved to the new layer of soil. The synagogue beside the cemetery has been turned into a memorial for Jewish victims of the Holocaust, with tens of thousands of Czech names 
printed on the interior walls. The site is visited by hundreds of tourists each day. New elements. Why not start with the dead layers? Their stones pushed up like tons, tasting the air of two halves of the century. They are bringing news to their damp apartments. They are banging brooms on the ceiling of loud neighbors arguing late ideas of new forms of darkness. The Kabbalists are testing relativity against the charts of an endless alphabet. They are breathing the faint residue of new arrivals to the periodic table, rearranging their circular formulae accordingly. In Pincus Synagogue, beside the stones, the walls of names have been speaking for years, learning language without bodies. It takes time for their sounds to travel the short space, to the tongues leaning on each other in the soft grass, like stars gone out centuries ago, whose light makes shadows during nights of a thin moon. The dead in their apartments listen. They murmur among themselves. They exclaim back and forth various ways to explain to the names their meaning. They are no squabbling crowd of pressed bones. They say, we will birth the future in your name. They say, we will give you our God in your abandonment. They say, we will continue with our work. Each name, the name of God. Each letter, the wind of the Lord. Each bone, the balance of the everlasting. Each particle of dirt, the Almighty. That was lovely. That's a beautiful poem, and you read beautifully, by the way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. We've been talking to Raphael Dagold. Check out his new prize-winning book of poems, Bastard Heart. Raphael, thank you for joining us on Words on a Wire. Thank you so much. It's been terrific. My name is Antonina Perez Yarbrough, and I'm originally from California, but right after finishing college, I moved to Poland and lived there as a teacher for three years. I came back to the States uh, just a year and a half ago to do a master's degree in English at Boston University, and now I'm teaching English as a second language at the New England School of English. And in my spare time, I've begun to really enjoy writing blog posts. The post I'm going to read today is about a book that I recently read after trying to read it last year and not managing to get through it. And as I managed to finish it this time, I was thinking about why it was I originally didn't want to read the book. So this piece is called Puss, the Doll, and the Internet. Studies have shown that regular Internet access has decreased our ability to concentrate for long periods of time. Over the past few years, this inability to focus has become painfully clear. If I sit down to watch a movie, I will inevitably get up to make myself some tea, play with my cats, or paint my nails. It's not that I don't enjoy the movie. It's just that there are so many other things I could also be doing. What has been even worse for me than the occasional movie distraction has been my own tendency to read shorter books because I know they won't take up as much time. There's certainly nothing wrong with reading short books, of course. 
What I do think is a problem, however, is refusing to read longer books because they take up too much time. And this was the trap into which I almost fell. I almost missed reading one of the most incredible books I've ever come across, all because it was 705 pages. Last year, I tried to read Boleslas Pouss' The Doll on my mother's recommendation. I got about 70 pages in and then decided I didn't like it enough to lug it back and forth from the MLA conference. This year, I decided to try it again. I started back at the beginning and again found myself uninterested and working very hard to follow the chronology. One day, I decided I would read for an hour more, and if I still wasn't interested, I'd give the book up once and for all. I didn't think I was ready for a 700-page commitment. That day, after another chapter or two of exposition, I suddenly found myself thrust into the middle of Wokulski's tragic preoccupation with the icy Isabella, and then I couldn't stop reading. Bolesław Prus is considered to be the master of Polish realism, and his style has been compared to Balzac's while his all-encompassing view of society in the 19th century is considered as skillful as Tolstoy's in Anna Karenina. High praise for a book that too few readers have heard of. Part of what I find fascinating about Proust's novel is that he presents characters that manage to be interesting without being idealized. In The Doll, Bokulski falls in love with the beautiful Isabella without even knowing her. She, in turn, is shallow and selfish. And yet I continually found myself hoping that each of them would somehow have a happy ending. What makes both Wokulski and Isabella, neither of them particularly prototypical protagonists, so fascinating is how painfully a product of their socio-historical context they are. Wokulski has worked his way up the social ladder by making millions in trade with Russian merchants, but he never quite becomes a part of the highest circles. Isabella may be unkind and selfish, but likewise, she was born into an inescapable ideology, which, in her case, values beautiful women with sizable dowries. Her father's bankruptcy leaves her few choices, as most of her suitors abandon her. Even Bokulski, who is willing to do almost anything for her, falls in love with her at a distance because of her beauty, and then is disappointed to discover the angelic faith masks a contemptuous soul. What makes the doll bleak in the end is that neither of the two principal characters manages to escape their unjust world. Even more wonderful than the tragic story of Wokulski and Isabella, however, is the portrait of Warsaw society as a whole. Each of the minor characters is beautifully detailed, and no character is left without a personality. There is the old clerk, Zetsky, who worships Napoleon, all the Napoleons, and is fascinated with politics, or P, as he surreptitiously refers to the subject in his journal. The Baroness Krzyzowska is the closest thing to a villain the novel has, and she manages to be realistically horrible while also being buffoonish. Her battles with the socialist students are endlessly riotous, and her persecution of the poor Mrs. Stavska causes some genuinely anxious moments. The Baron's ridiculous duel with Bokulski and the increasing economic success of Schlangbaum also provide clear pictures of this world in which Bokulski and Isabella find themselves trapped. After I finished the book, I realized how silly it would have been not to read it just because it was long. When I was younger, it seemed perfectly normal for a book to spend some time providing background. But nowadays, we all want instant gratification. If a book isn't captivating by the end of the first page, it's not worth our time. No wonder so many young authors find themselves drawn to writing memoirs about drug addiction or outlandish murder stories. They know they have only seconds to get their readers' attention and keep it. After I read the first paragraph of Gillian Flynn's Dark Places, 
in which she manages to drop the words blood, murders, and dead sisters, I couldn't imagine putting the book down. And it was an entertaining read, all right, but it was no proof. And yet I almost gave up on this classic because it took a few chapters to get to the real meat of the story. Are we destined eventually to stop reading the greatest works of literature, all because they're long and slow and meandering? I hope not. For Words on the Wire, I'm Antonina Perez Yarbrough. Thank you for listening to another edition of Words on a Wire. And thank you, Raphael Dagold, for sharing that lovely poem and for talking about your book, Bastard Heart. And also, we'd like to thank Antonina Paris Yarborough for her wonderful poetic license. It really causes us to think about slowing down when we're reading books. And let's not forget to thank our brilliant producer, Norma Martinez. And she can boss me around any day of the Absolutely. week. Absolutely. You know, it's something about the way she bosses us around <laughs> that makes it okay. <laughs> so thank you for listening. Stay tuned next week for another edition of Words on a Wire. And remember... I'm Daniel Chacon. And I'm Benjamin Alita Sines. The next book you read... Will save your life.